Hey, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Anyone who's been involved in education knows that education and educating, well, it ain't easy. Hmm. It can be tricky and challenging to figure out how to best learn, integrate, and distill information to an audience, whether that audience is a bunch of freshmen at 8 a.m. in the morning, always one of the biggest challenges. Always a big challenge. Always a big challenge, but only slightly behind the challenge of addressing C-level executives at any time because they both mm. have about the same attention spans. True. From the days of Socrates and the Agora, and even before, the challenge of reaching learning with or reaching learners with information that connects and educates has existed. Even when Socrates was staying around, he was probably getting annoyed because people were on their phones not paying attention. The emergence of a wide array of technologies has further complicated this question of how to teach. Given the pandemic, we've all become familiar and acquainted with Google Classroom and Zoom, along with an array of learning management systems that exist and more and more seem to proliferate. But these have not necessarily changed how we do teaching, rather it changed just how we deliver it. Technology itself doesn't change the act of teaching it just changes the modality of how people get access to the information. So what's needed is a fresh evaluation or a reevaluation of how we reach a broader audiences and more widely distributed audiences with the information that we have and the information that they need. Yeah, I mean, this is all the more important, right, since COVID in that we have spent more time online and in remote spaces and learning. Uh, and so to help us explore these topics, we are excited to welcome Dr. Mohamed Latib to the Experience Design Studio. And Mohamed is one of the founders of CX University as well as PX University. And if you're curious what CX and PX are, this would be customer experience and patient experience. These are online educational resources for those who are looking to become trained and more and well-versed in these areas of experience design. Now, Mohamed has had a long career in teaching and consulting and professional development with a ton of different kinds of clients. And while he's learned that each client comes with their own unique needs and characteristics, you know, such as those freshmen at 8 a.m. or trying to talk to the C-suite, there is actually a common set of features that we need to think about. Because at the end of the day, you are dealing with humans after all, and we have things like attention spans and other things on our minds and what we're trying to accomplish all in the learning process or the classroom. So for this episode, we're going to be digging into some really cool topics like the democratization of knowledge through technology. Offering courteous nudges, which I love this idea. Um, and courteous Not discourteous <laughs> nudges, but, but discourteous nudge sounds sounds not quite as nice, you know. Um, so courteous nudges versus, you know, there could be a discourteous nudge here too. Uh, and we're also going to be talking about how to provide and think through learning support itself. So we'll also be discussing how experience can boil down to three key elements: cognition, emotion, and behavior. And I am tempted to add the fourth one of courteous nudges here. Yes. Uh, you know. So finally, while we explore the systems-based elements of experience design and how if you build content that is robust and that captures people's interest, then you can deliver meaningful learning experiences that'll provide the educational foundation upon which they can build their futures. So it's a great conversation. We are excited to dive into it with you. So let's get to it. Thank you.
Yeah, as, as we were speaking of email, I have recently resolved finally to make significant changes in my life, which includes unsubscribing from spam. And I don't know why mm. I didn't do that before, but it was just like, you know, it's just, is it easier just to keep deleting it or to go through the steps of unsubscribing and unsubscribing felt feels like I'm turning a page in my life because I'm committed to cleaning up things that are cluttering my world to maybe make a, a clearer pathway to some possible future. Yes, yes, yes. Now, you know, when I unsubscribe, I sometimes find them Pre presenting a form where they want my first name, my last name, my email address, and all the contact inf content information that they would otherwise pay for to unsubscribe. So I don't unsubscribe when they want that additional information. I just delete the email. Mm. And I can't get away from that. They'll, they'll keep pounding it in my direction, and I'll just keep deleting it. Is there and no escape then from online content? Uh, are, we, no. are, we, are we doomed? And, well, we're not quite doomed unless we want to do something about it because legally they're supposed to allow anyone receiving an email to make the choice of saying, I do not want any more. Uh, but who's, who's going to follow up on what, what constitutes a minor matter in the grand scheme of life? It should be mm -hmm. part of the UN Declaration on Human Rights. Not that the UN has much power in, in anything. We should have an email bill of rights, right? Maybe we can yes. mobilize NATO. I don't know. There should be something done. Yeah. Well, you know, I, when, I was, when I was traveling in Europe, I don't know if I ever told you this, but they have the Passenger Bill of Rights. Right. Mm. And, and I'll tell you what that means. I have, I'm an example of it. We missed our flight. We missed our flight, right? Flying from Amsterdam to Philadelphia. They put us on the next available flight and then they cancel that flight because they cancel that flight. They called us in, gave us uh, uh, ATM card and said, go get your money from the ATM machine. They gave us 700 euros. Wow. Me and my colleague, they gave us 700 euros, which is more than the price of the ticket. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad deal. We keep missing flights in Europe. Yeah, my kind of rights. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's a good, that's a good travel tip. Tra yeah. You know, travel strategy. If, if you get nothing else from this podcast today, you got that. How to make 700, 700 euros by missing flights. Someone's trying to figure out how to make that into a scam. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I like that. I mean, that makes me think then, in terms of if we had an e email bill of rights, um, what kind of recompense could we get for, uh, <laughs> for either sending our information over or, or yeah, saying we don't want yeah. this anymore? Yeah. Well, if we have an email bill of rights, can you imagine the kind of ruckus it would create? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when we send uh, and, uh, you know, talk about selling content, right? I mean, we create content and, of course, we want to sell it, which is what right. our business is about. And we do a lot of marketing. But, you know, what's interesting is that our CRM uh, is managed on the back end by the company we license the CRM from. Mm -hmm. And they actually keep an eye on whether or not the emails we are distributing constitutes spam. Okay. Interesting. And so on occasion, they would call us and say, you need to correct some of the stuff you guys are doing because we're getting a lot of people complaining. And so we are always brought to pause to review and look to see what's going on. And so we continuously clean up our database so that we don't have folks there that we should not be sending emails to. Hmm. That's an interesting feature, I guess, or service from the yes. aspect of customer service, right? And customer experience. 
on on your side because it's like that's a client that you've hired. Yes. But as yes. part of their service for compliance, they're making sure that their their offering is safe. But at the same time, it offers a really interesting aspect for you yeah. to then see are we yeah. sending the proper kinds of, of messaging and marketing. Right. It also protects them in terms of their brand, right? Because they want to sell mm-hmm. more of their technologies to other people. Mm-hmm. And if they develop some integrity, then the technologies get to be better received by folks. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's an interesting question too, in terms of integrity as as a brand feature that we might think about here for for a part of this conversation. In that, you know, for for your work when putting on, whether through kind of you know the kind of content that you're creating, whether through you know Sage University or other other arenas, what is I guess I'm curious in, in your process in terms of how do we think about the idea of like how do we build integrity with with our customers. Um, as part of that process through the content that we create or through the the channels in which we market it, you know, how do we, th- how do we think about that idea? I think it's really interesting um, because a lot of it is about brand trust, right? How do I trust the, the information, the folks that I'm getting it from? Yes. Um, yes. What role does that play? Yeah, no, you're quite right, Adam. So, so let me share with you. And we didn't quite think of it as explicitly as the issue you're raising, uh, but we are very, very sensitive to our customers and their sentiments So, for example, how do we establish the integrity of what we're delivering? Uh, We do so by continuously engaging our customers with uh, uh, email exchanges. And typically they occur when we observe that someone's sort of lagging behind, not keeping pace with the materials that they've purchased. So they get reminders from Sue's, our chief learning officer, sort of very pleasant, courteous nudges. Uh, people will come and say, oh, I've lost my, uh, I, I, I don't remember my password. A lot of folks will come back and say, I don't know my password. How do I access the system? And they always get extremely polite responses from us. And let me tell you, one, one vehicle that we have found very useful to maintain a level of integrity that's recognized is timeliness. Mm. We, we have customers in over 95 countries around the world. We are responsive within a matter of hours. It doesn't matter when we get emails. And we do get emails at 3 in the morning, at 4 in the morning. You know, nobody really thinks about yeah. time zones. They only think about, I have a need. Are you going to meet my need? And as long as we're able to respond in a timely manner, people are happy. They, they, they are favorably disposed. And then we continuously ask for feedback. Now, we, uh, you know, we uh, get feedback and we use the NPS system for it mm-hmm. uh, only because it's simple and it gives us a pulse of what sentiments are about our content and anything else that's attendant with the content. Uh, and when you have an NPS score of 84, as we do, that's pretty impressive. Right. It tells it tells us people are uh, positive about their experiences with us. Hmm. As you're talking about this, I had a recent exchange with somebody who's in the CX space and talking about students as student experience or what I would call learning experience or students as customer experience. And it seems to me that you're in a very interesting place, partly because you've taught at the university level. So you've dealt with students in a, you know, in a semester classroom, but also you have people through CX University or PX University who are students, but they're also customers. And so I, I, there's a lot of lines of thinking here that I want to explore, but one of them is how do you think about 
them as customers on the one hand and as students on the other hand. Both you want to deliver what they want as customers, but as a person who's creating content, you have to deliver what you think they need, uh, you know, since they're in a position as being a student and wanting to learn. So it's an interesting question, uh, Gary. Um, let me let me share my position, especially when I'm presenting to people. Whether you're a student, uh, quote unquote, customer, a patient, a member of a museum or nonprofit organization, doesn't matter. I always look to, uh, I always share the idea that there are common threads because there's a human person. Forget the label. That's a human person. Call that person whatever you want, student, customer, member, patient, whatever you want. The common threads are that they are all human beings. And for me, experience boils down to influencing three very important elements of the human species. How do I influence your cognitions? How do I get you to think about me in ways that I'd like you to think about me? How do I touch your heart? How do I make you feel? the way I want you to feel. And if there's congruence between the cognitions and the feeling, behavior will express itself in a manner that's congruent with those thoughts and feelings. And so when you lay those threads, common threads out, I think people begin to grasp the idea that human experience is truly what we're talking about. Yeah, especially in relation to even patient experience, because in a customer experience world, you know, the customer, quote unquote, is always right, even though we know that's not true. But, you know, in a patient experience world, the patient may not know. I mean, the, the knowledge differential between doctor or healthcare provider, clinician and patient might be pretty vast. And the news being delivered by the clinician might not be what the patient wants to hear. So I always when I talk about this with my students, one of the things that I you know raise is the issue of of power, differential power dynamics, knowledge gaps. And how, even though they're all humans, the labels infer a different kind of power relationship in these different contexts mm -hmm. that, you know, we, we, you know, we need to think about whether we want to reduce that power differential as part of experience design. So I'm a professor, but I can reduce that by, by increasing my attention to the needs of the students, which I don't have to do, but I want to do to make their experience better. Yeah. Or if I magnify the power differential... <laughs> that creates a different kind of experience. And I, I don't know, and I guess I'm kind of thinking out loud here, I don't know if the question of power is explicitly thought of much or talked about much in experience design space. Absolutely, absolutely. I talk about it all the time. Okay. I, 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 for instance, assert that uh, regardless of, for instance, the differential in knowledge between a doctor and a patient, right. let's accept that that's a huge gap, right? Right. But today we have the, <coughs> pardon me, an obvious democratization of information and knowledge because of our capacity to be able to pick our way into knowledge repositories, information repositories. So think about, you know, how we, on our phones, our smartphones or computers, we go and dig and search, we Google everything, right? And many, many of us who are patients go into uh, care informed, 
Uh, now, they may not be as knowledgeable as a doctor might be, but they're at least informed. They're also informed about non-clinical elements of their entire experience and journey in a care environment. So, for instance, if you, if you saw studies that have been done in hospital systems about disenchantment, it's amazing. The temperature of the food that's being delivered in mm. hospital rooms is a major issue. And in fact, it's more of an issue than the clinical work that care providers are addressing. Hmm. Uh, or, or for that matter, noise. You know, patients are in right. their rooms, right? And you get stations in and around the rooms that's ridden with so much noise. They complain about noise. Now, you think about design issues and experience right. issues. Those are very critical, vital, vital elements of how human beings respond. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, and, and just interesting question in terms of, to your point, that whether or not one is informed about the potential type of care they might need, how they would receive that care if they're in a hospital when they're getting food, right, can totally change that experience. Exactly. Um, and, and point out what they actually don't have power over too, right? So it's interesting even to notice, like, it, it's interesting when you shine light on, like, where one arena of power is in terms of knowledge then you realize where a gap is elsewhere which is the location of a nursing station relation right. in, in right. Um, relation to rooms that, that is really interesting yeah. and feels and feels simpler too right the idea of a temperature of food feels like a very simple thing compared to do i know about a potential pr procedure i might need right yet that's going to have just as much of an impact sometimes to one's experience exactly. so that's exactly. fascinating yeah yeah so, so, you know, and, and I know you guys uh, think of it, uh, you think of experience in systemic terms, right. isn't it? Mm, right. So all these elements that influence what we eventually end up feeling, uh, thinking, and how we respond to those thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's an exact, exact, I mean, this really, this really echoes this idea, right? Gary talks about the experience ecosystem to that point. Right. And it's like right. this idea of recognizing right. that yep. one yep. thread will pull another one and then and, and change yes. it. I, yeah. Yeah. exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Do you um, do you find yeah. that when you're dealing with talking with potential clients doing customized content, I wonder if the idea of an experience ecosystem or a systemic approach starts to feel overwhelming to folks <laughs> in terms of its complexity and whether or not that makes them shy away from engaging in that level of analysis or thought or design for something that feels more manageable or tolerable or uh, functionally possible, right? So we can't, we can't think about everything. So we're just going to look at this one thing and ignore the rest. Yeah. Well, you know, from my experience, Gary and Adam, uh, what I have found is that if you build content that is robust, people are favorably disposed. What complicates life, especially in an organizational context, is the politics. Mm. And I, I just finished a customized uh, a program for a large German pharma company. There was The content was very well received, but the internal political dynamics was so, so dramatic that we were either on or we were off. Mm -hmm. It's all a function of those internal players that have their own agendas. And let's not talk about silos, right? Mm -hmm. The reality of silos is so patently obvious 
and then you have to deal with those aspects. So when you think about an ecosystem from a design or experience perspective, with our lenses, it's very clear what we want to design and, and produce and deliver. But then the recipients have their lenses through which they view this reality and they do so with self-interest, they do so with political agendas, and before you know it, you get derailed in some way or the other. Now, fortunately, in, in the instance I'm referring to, uh, we were fine. Perhaps I shouldn't have even mentioned the, the fact that it was a German pharma company. Uh, it might be obviously one of those folks, which <laughs> is to be known. Um, but, but it's a fact. It's a fact that uh, complicates life uh, because of those uh, political elements that come into play in organizational life. I don't mm-hmm. think that I don't think that there's any company that doesn't have the situation you described. I know mine yeah. does. Yeah. And it's not necessarily because people are trying mm-hmm. to be malicious. It's just a function and a factor of, of institutions and complex organizations and the way resources get allocated that these elements will emerge. It, I don't, sure. it has nothing to do with any any culture in specific. Now it's culture can exacerbate that, but you know, it's it's definitely going to be there in any organization that you take sure. a look at. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally agree with you, Gary. Uh, for me, what is uh, interesting is every organization has its own nuances, right? But culturally, uh, there can be some really pivotal uh, aspects of organizational life. For example, an organization that is governed by fear. Right. Mm. I mean, you know, when you have employees who are muzzled, can you imagine the repression and the potential for explosive responses? And when you have a culture of fear, you know, forget design thinking. Right. It just gets thrown into the garbage can because no one's allowed to speak up. I mean, the creative process calls for openness and transparency, right? When you have a culture of fear, forget it. Even that becomes a challenge. What is so obviously common sense? I mean, the whole concept of design thinking, the creative journey, is is common sense. I mean, what's mysterious about it? Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, you guys know this better than I do. Well, it's a good marketing. Is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's I think that's exactly right. Though and it's important to kind of recognize when when we're coming into either if we say, quote unquote, diagnose uh, an area in terms of around, around experience design and or deliver a solution, whether it's through content or, or service design or an element like that, mm-hmm. recognizing that the cultural world in, into which we're stepping, right? Like politics is going to be somewhat of a given. It, just, it depends on like to what to what extent it may, you know, give us an on off switch versus a like a slow burn or a chill, yeah. we might say. Yeah. But yeah. I think you're you're 100% correct there too, Mohammed. that... Uh, you know, if if we don't recognize the 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 culture that's in an organization, then we're missing part of like how delivery could even be done better, or or why it won't work, right? And so, and we may then incorrectly take away that it was our content that didn't work, but it's actually yeah. not necessarily that it could be that. But yeah. Um, yeah. you know, so how to diagnose that problem? It's funny because, like, to your point, like the you know the first step of design thinking, right, is like let's define the problem. But oftentimes, delivery, which we may count as like a later, you know, a sixth step. Um, you know, we sometimes forget that that's also about diagnosing a problem too of how do you actually deliver properly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah and yeah. I've missed the mark a few times on that too by recognizing or not recognizing a politics in, in a certain situation or in an organization. 
Um, and you don't know till later you say, Oh, turns out that we're, we lost our advocate, right? We had, we had an evangelist that was in the organization that said, come, come and do the work. And then they leave by the time it's delivered or something, or they're not on the project anymore. Yeah. And then yeah. there's no buy-in, right? So even that too can, can derail it. It's interesting yeah. to, yeah. Have to that's, that's, that. that's, that's always a killer. It's always a killer. When you have an advocate who disappears, when you have an internal champion that steps aside, mm-hmm. uh, that, that creates so much of friction afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like thing we don't realize too. It's like the you know to think of our ecosystem metaphor too. Of like that's what it's like. That's what's creating the fertile ground for which the the plants can grow. And then when, mm-hmm. when that when that atmosphere leaves, absolutely, um, absolutely. You know, one one thread that also was was coming up that I'm I'm curious your thoughts on is the the three elements you talked about in terms of looking for. Uh, kind of affecting, influencing the human, what we call the human experience, right? The idea of cognition, heart, and, and kind of behavioral alignment. And something that that is interesting, I work often, I work in the, the the consumer insights, foresights, you know, space. And so we dip a little bit into the, into kind of market research. But um, what's interesting is that, you know, we were an anthropology firm, um, you know, we work in it. And so we're, we're very forward of like talking about meaning and culture as things that we have to understand. But like the, a lot of the, the, I want to say quote unquote competition, but really actually like the collaborative side of the work is actually like this, you know, marketing uh, obsessed behavioral science as like, that's like the main focus. I think this is interesting because even as you noticed, and as you noted too, that if we can align cognition and heart, then behavior follows. But it's funny because so much of insights and marketing work is the flip, right? It's one it wants to understand the behavior. And then um, oftentimes the same when then people then come to us and say, well, this product is selling, but we don't know why. Right. And so they don't actually have the cognition and the heart side of it. So it's, I'm interested in terms of how you, how you think about aligning those. And, and hey, I agree, like how we come with the cognition and the heart side first <laughs> and then find ourselves like behavioral aligned. But do you run into the same kind of challenge too, that when you're either, you know, producing, delivering content or thinking about the, the broader experience design arena that oftentimes clients, customers are, they start with behavior and then slowly wake up to the fact that it's actually these other, these other parts also. Um, I don't know. How has that like emerged in your work too, in terms of how folks kind of approach part of the, the Trinity of experience, we might say, if it's those three yeah, pieces. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I'll use that. I'm going to steal that from you. Adam, the Trinity of experience. You're here first. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that uh, I think you make an astute observation that, uh, especially if you're a market researcher, you're a consumer behaviorist, you obviously are going to look at behavior first and then try and decipher uh, what that means, how do you understand behavior? So consumer market research, in fact, starts with behavioral stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And then you sort of inductively start working towards an understanding of why people behave the way they do. Now, from my perspective, we've always begun with the reverse. I'm more interested in, in what is it that I can do to influence what happens between your ears, Right. Mm. I am interested in behavior, but only as a consequence of the influence I can have on how you think and how you feel. Mm. Uh, and and it's, to your, to your uh, logic about alignment, if I can align thoughts and feelings, I don't have to be concerned about behavior unless it's uh, behavior that is not positive uh, it, it doesn't generate the consequences that were that were expected by aligning thoughts and feelings uh, then you have a whole different kind of a problem you know is it mm. uh, uh, is it a is is there some kind of uh, 
issue that is not part of a healthy system that needs to be addressed. Um, you know, and, and I love the fact that as an anthropologist, uh, you look at all of these markers in organizations to determine what kind of a design intervention is appropriate. Um, and, and coming back to the earlier conversation about content, and, you know, Gary and I have been sort of floating the idea of content. I love the idea of us developing content from an anthropological perspective, because if you look at all the artifacts in organizational life, they are so powerful and meaningful, and most people just ignore them. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I would say getting anthropology content is great. I mean, that's if you can't get sociology content. I mean, if you can get sociology content, that's what you would want to go with first. But if, you can't, if you can't get that, anthropology is fine, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's like the stepchild, you know. It's yeah, trying, I mean, you know? It, it, it'll, it'll work in a pinch. Um, but, you know, I mean, obviously, you'd want to get more sociological. I mean, I know, I know I joke about that, but I also know, Mohammed, that you're, you know, your background in organizational behavior and management and HR. And, you know, the, the ways in which I, I vision management and marketing as applied social science, yes. as, you know, and how, mm. how do we think about taking these conceptual foundational elements and then putting them in particular context aimed towards producing certain kinds of outcomes or reaching certain kind of goals. And, you know, for me being at a business school, uh, it's interesting to see how we can intersect that social science whether it be anthro, psych, social, whatever, even other humanities, and then see how we can apply them in these specific domains. And that's why I think is really interesting and exciting about experience design is that it's a, it's a very clear manifestation of that congruence between these different worlds that are often thought about as being separate and distinctive. Yeah. We see them uh, aligning, coalescing in this space of experience design. I totally agree with you. Totally agree with you, Gary. I think if you look at all the disciplines that we are familiar with, they're all applied disciplines, right? And, and we take advantage of that for those of us that think that some value in the application of concepts and models, right? Uh, and, and that's what we try to do. And I like I'm going to steal that as well. I mean, I know about social science, but you just made it more explicit. So now I've got two things I'm going to steal from you guys. I, I would right. not go with the acronym for applied social science. I think we need different. <laughs> I think we need different letters. Uh, but point, you know, I don't point. know. Maybe maybe that will sell because yeah. it's memorable. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, but I think that it's, it's right on too. I mean, it's 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 funny too. But I think that that is actually one of the, the important pieces too that you know, how we can think about the, the question of congruence and, and, you, and Muhammad, you mentioned before in terms of the, the not to mention, but I'm going to mention it too, like the challenge of siloing, right? In organizations and across organizations too, that there's either lack of communication or you no know, goals or, or just in terms of that, you know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And we see this all the time, right? Um, and even in terms of like, how do we, how do we meet different parts of an organization can be a challenge because someone says, I don't even know who, who's over there. Who, who could you, who do I call? I don't even know. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so I think like how our, the disciplines that we're, that we're thinking across here train us to be attentive to the, the interconnectedness and the relationality between things like, you know, heart and mind, but then also in an organization, in a small community, right? It is actually about often these informal networks. Uh, and so recognizing too, that even this, 
when we're trying to make sense, especially if something it's like in HR, even like, how do we, how do we think about what's the best way to, to build relationships with employees, whether, you know, through onboarding, but then if we have to have dis- disciplinary procedures or whatever it is, you know, trying to make the right kinds of, of choices and, and also thinking about what kind of content do we create to, to bring those messages out to people. Um, it's really interesting to then think about like, what role can content play in helping break down silos and, and, and kind of showing, and I'm, I'm saying the word selling loosely, selling the idea of congruence across an organization or relationships between people. Um, something, I mean, something that, that we wrestle with also just thinking about too, is this idea of, um, you know, a blog post, a podcast, a video may work in one area, but not somewhere else. And it's not necessarily again, the content's fault, but recognizing like, how do we, how do we think more strategically about the kinds of content that we want to create is whether it's, you know, leaders or organizational managers, um, folks in HR, uh, to help kind of cross cut some of those those boundaries that we might unintentionally create as as part of our organizations. That's a giant question. <laughs> but yeah, no, no, I, I I'm totally aligned with you, Adam. But uh, think about it from a design perspective. Design methodology, I think, allows us to be able to crack those mm. boundaries. Uh, you know, I, I was uh, I was doing consulting work for a large textile company. I'm talking about the 80s, right? Based in Montreal, Canada, and I can mention the name. It's a company called Dominion Textiles, mm. and they had a subsidiary in Georgia called Swift Textiles. These folks were known to be the prime manufacturer of denim mm. cloth for Levi's jeans and Wrangler jeans. And part of my charge working with the senior executives was to rationalize R&D resources. I'm not kidding you when I tell you that right across the street from where we were having this conversation, there was an R&D team spending an enormous amount of trying to solve the same issue. Hmm. I mean, that's the kind of yeah. transparency and linkages that needs to be established and I think design methodology helps us to do that because mm. fundamentally we're talking about collaboration isn't it yep. and whenever we think about collaboration what people don't understand that it gives you more than what you can produce on your own Mm-hmm. Tapping into the minds of other individuals just creates a reservoir of, of talent and insights that hopefully can carry back to those uh, tough walls and get them cracked. Mm-hmm. It's it's a good point. I mean, even thinking like it's it's like the the other adage, right? The sum is greater than the the, the parts, right? And yeah. you know, when you try to refit that that new hole back into the original space, it's it's much larger. And, yeah, they could literally crack some of the. We have some good some good visuals here. We could actually do some content on this. I think. <laughs> there we go. A TikTok yes. video. Yes, indeed. Yes, yeah. Indeed. yeah. Do you, you know? Speaking of TikTok videos, I mean, by the way, when did CX University get founded? Um, legally and technically, in 2016. Okay. Uh, but its genesis was a year prior to that. A lot of basic research work that I had to do right. preceded the, the, the formalities by a year. So I would say 2015 is when the journey began. So even in that time, right, six years, it doesn't seem like a long time, but in the world of content creation, it's an enormous amount of time. And this is something I wrestle with too, as a person who teaches online synchronously and asynchronously, have you felt a shift in terms of what people's appetites are for the type and the range of content? And we might even think about like video length, right? That we joke about 
TikTok videos being, you know, a certain amount of time versus a YouTube video, which might be a different amount of time versus a video for class, which might be another amount of time, you know, that I might record for a class. Have you seen a shift in how and what your customers are talking about and needing and how you're approaching and orienting to creating this content? Uh, and the answer is uh, as follows, Gary. In fact, the three of us know this very well. And my uh, chief learning officer, Sue, and I have been university professors like you guys. We've worked in higher ed. We understand uh, the dynamics of learning. We understand the technology of knowledge creation, right? Um, what we have found is that people want to have different modalities of learning. So we have narrative content, we have supplementary articles, we have videos, we have case studies, we have knowledge checks. And then we went further to try and make this a journey that's also rich in learning, but with some fun in it. So we gamified lessons. So we've developed interactive gamified modules around various con concepts in our program. And that mix that we offer uh, is what people respond to. Now, some would respond more favorably to certain aspects versus others. But I can tell you, carry universally, universally, people don't want to read. Right. And because, and, and we can monitor this. We, we monitor people's behavior. We can tell how much time has been spent in certain right. uh, pieces of the journey through the LMS. And Sue comes back and says, most people don't want to read. And so as a result of that, we've created alternative paths of learning. So, you know, we have an academic program that is filled with readings. This is for graduate credit. Mm -hmm. uh, through Moravian University. Now, whenever we have something that's eligible for graduate credit, it must meet the rigors of academic standards, right? So the, the, the engagement for our academic program is upwards of 145 hours to meet mm -hmm. accreditation requirements. Then we got the executive version. Uh, we say you can get the same content, we'll just peel away all of the pieces that you don't like. So 25, 30 hours to finish our, our basic executive program, which is where most people find themselves. Um, and, and, and while we've, while our approach was always to, to develop and deliver asynchronous content, last year, Gary, we found that uh, people were calling for some kind of blended option. Right. And so we have a blended option. You have the online component, and then we have uh, faculty-facilitated meetings uh, periodically, and, and folks have responded very positively to that. In fact, we just launched our 17th cohort since February of last year, uh, which, which itself is a, is a marker of, of the response the market is displaying as we build content and then deliver it in various modalities. It, it's it, that's really fascinating to me because for a lot of reasons, one of which is the the extent to which academic institutions can be relatively slow rolling or slow changing regarding how they conceptualize the delivery of content. Right? I mean, every semester, you know, we get the request of what books are you using. Well, that assumes that that's the best approach, which yeah. is to use a book, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's other ways we can do course packs and everything else, but there's still a major emphasis around what books yeah. are you using? 
And even though students don't want to read, I guess the question always comes back to why are we using a book? Are we using it because we need to structure the class to deliver the content, to make them memorize material, to spark interest in learning and creativity, right? I mean, and I, I tell you the truth, I do not like to think about what my students do with the books because mm -hmm. I am sure I will be somewhat depressed. Yeah. <laughs> so I just make yeah. sure that I get yeah. them books yeah. that uh, I, I require books that are cheap and that have shelf life. Yeah. You might not get to yeah. this now, yeah. Yeah. but just yeah. hold on to it because yeah. at some point you might want to take a look at it and learn something from it. You, you know, you know, Gary, my, uh, as someone uh, like you that's taught for so many years, I mean, I've been a university professor for almost 40 years. Right. Books uh, makes the life of a faculty member easy. Right. It's bounded knowledge, right? This is the, these are the parameters that you are responsible for. And it does make life easy. Now, think about the alternative. I know some colleagues of mine that have dispensed with books and say books are useless. Let's put together a compendium of appropriate resources that makes right. the journey rich. That requires a significant amount of time and investment on the mm -hmm. part of faculty. I dare say we have colleagues that are not interested in that. And I would, I would add also, and this I actually wanted to ask you about this, if in CX University, right, your organization, your job is to create content, mm -hmm. learning content for an audience. A faculty member's job is only partly that, mm -hmm. depending upon the institution, that might be a small part. And so there's also service, there's also scholarship, right? And mm -hmm. so... Going back, you think about metrics. If the metrics for promotion and tenure are aligned primarily around scholarship, but then you want people to be creative around creating compendiums of learning materials, yes. well, you can't yeah. serve all of it. That's right? true. It's That's just true. more of, you know, talk about employee experience. It's yeah. a really tough ask. Yeah. If the yeah. university's job was just to educate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then that's yeah. a different matter, I think. I but it, it's it, and I think a lot of people don't understand that a faculty member's job, especially if you're tenure track, is not just to teach classes. Yeah. This is why when people tell me, "Oh, you have summers off," <laughs> I want to kill them. <laughs> this is why we have gun laws in Massachusetts because I'm like, "Only so schools." <laughs> yeah. Oh, you get summers off. Isn't that great? Yeah. Did you have a great summer? Take it easy this summer. I'm, I'm like losing my mind right now with all yeah. the stuff I'm trying to fit in before mm. two weeks from now. Yeah. No, no, I, I, Gary, I'm with you. It's, it's, it's for me. It's the paradox of being a faculty member. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have so many paradoxes in higher education systems. Uh, and, you know, you're being tugged and pulled in different directions. And frankly, if, if you don't establish your credentials to get tenure, you're done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you want to establish yourself as a tenured faculty member, then you dispense with all the other important issues like servicing students, for example. Right. Right. Like focusing mm -hmm. on student experience. The hell with that. I have a agenda. Yeah. And my agenda is very clear. If I don't publish, I will perish. Right. Mm -hmm. What happened to that guy? I don't know, but he had a great compendium. Yeah, he sure did. <laughs> it's too bad he's not a wonder what, like horse packet. Yeah. What, what he's doing yeah. now. I think he's that's driving exactly. an Uber. I'm not yeah. sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I think that's going to change, Gary. I think yeah. institutions are going to have to come to these new realities of life. And, yeah. Uh, and I mean, think about, uh, you know, why do we have so many for-profit institutions of higher education? 
Mm-hmm. These, are, these are organizations that understand markets, they understand business, they understand the notion of agility. And so they are responsive and they create competitive pressures on traditional schools, like the ones we've been associated with, except in the instance where you get traditional schools that have innovative leadership. Right. And then they start stepping outside the box to do things that are creative and innovative and really challenges the status quo. And when you realize that if you step outside the box, it doesn't mean there's a ledge right there that you're going to fall over. That's you can true. actually do it safely yeah. and mm-hmm. that you can you know, be innovative and yeah. expand the content or the brand through the content at least. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Agree. Agree. Yeah. I mean, it's been even interesting to see that just like the rise of, of, um, in part because of the pandemic, but obviously before that too, like the, the increasing rise of, of online classes in general, right? Um, for universities, because like both the book is a good example and also like that it's it's traditionally always like synchronous in-person learning, right? You know, it's yeah. schedule. Yeah. Um, and even that too is interesting to see how that might find its way way to shifting. Because even even thinking about like CX University, I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea that, um, and I've seen this elsewhere too, where it's like you can have a similar um, content pack, but again, it's delivered differently, right? Whether it is like a graduate level course or kind of an executive version, um, text versus audio versus video, mm-hmm. you know, it's mm-hmm. interesting to even think about this too, that, um, I now can't remember where I read this, but, um, it was, I, I heard, you know, it maybe, maybe it's on a podcast. I'll find it and I'll, I'll send this later. But like, um, but someone was talking about this idea that like books have one of the worst, like knowledge to time ratios mm-hmm. <laughs> of information <laughs> delivery systems. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wait a minute. But yeah. I was like, that's, that's actually makes sense though. Right. Cause you know, yeah. you can get, you can do that. You can learn differently. So it's an interesting question of two of this, of like, if we're talking about metrics and like, if it's like, like delivery effectiveness of information, a book doesn't do well no. on that scale. Right. No. <laughs> In terms of time. I agree. I agree. You know, what's interesting is that uh, we have great technology, right? And technology to me is nothing other than a tool that needs to be used with purpose. So I think about, I go back to these, to the uh, very beginning of my uh, online journey. I delivered and first MBA course online in 1996. Wow. Wow. And people didn't even know the existence of the internet. There were, co- there were computers back then. My students don't think there were computers in 1996. <laughs> they are sure. Let me, listen, want- Gary, let me tell you what I did in order to facilitate. Forget the, 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 the warfares I had with traditionalists taking right. the, with the idea of putting everything into a digital space, right? Mm. The immediate thing was quality, quality, quality. And this is runs against the grain of tradition right. and you can't do this. So there were constant battles to be fought. But imagine I actually opened, constructed, not open, constructed, uh, video conferencing classrooms around the world. Hmm. And look at this. Today, we are, I get into my calendar, and here we are talking, right? It's, it's a right. software platform. Um, I, I forget the point I wanted to make, uh, bringing all of this in, is simply to say that uh, the world has changed. And look at the richness, forget books for a moment, but look at the richness that can come through reach and access. You know, part of my agenda going online was not just to take education online, but also to create a cross-cultural reality for people. Mm. So the notion, for instance, of a student, uh, you know, in an insulated environment of the Lehigh Valley, having a conversation with a student in Botswana. 
Right. Like, mm-hmm. like we are. I mean, we're in three different locations, but here we are having a conversation. And I mean, that kind of richness doesn't come from textbooks. It comes from palpable experiences like we're having here. Mm, right. and, and so when you, when you promote the idea of using technology to cross cultural boundaries uh, because people can't afford to travel, uh, look at the enormous advantage and the efficiencies that come from the use of this technology that we use today. So we use so readily today, and and so inexpensively. Mm-hmm. Uh, those those video conference classrooms are all obsolete now, obsolete, totally obsolete. I remember on the campus where I was at the sales. Every campus I ran three campuses, and every campus had video conference classrooms. I don't think they're being used anymore. They're useless. Mm-hmm. It's, it's funny you mentioned that. One of the things, you know, all, by my school, we, during the pandemic, I think every classroom essentially was kitted out with hybrid or distance learning capabilities. Yeah. And now we're all back in the classroom, right? We're supposed to be all back in the classroom. And there's a discouraging about having students not be in the classroom. But now we have all this technology that's just kind of like sitting there. So one of the yeah. things that I that I did on LinkedIn yesterday was I said, um, if I'm teaching a, a new course on experience design. If anybody wants to sit in on any of the courses, any of the, the class sessions throughout the year, we can do this virtually. Just here's a quick Google form. Fill it out. Let me know. That was yesterday. I have 28 people. Wow. Who, uh, from LinkedIn. Yeah. Who... You know, they're not, they're not looking for a degree. They're not, they're they're looking for an opportunity to engage in content and learn from it. Yes. Through this technology that's in every classroom on my college campus, which for the most part will not be used. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what does the technology afford us in terms of possibility and where, and how can we reimagine the idea of education through that technology to go beyond just the physical classroom. I can't wait to learn what the authorities at your institution will say about having adopted 28 LinkedIn passengers. I mean, you know, it's the, you know, with tenure comes possibility. And, but I think, you know, but I also think, you know, being at a business school, the, the upside of it is for my students, ideally, and I've done this before. Yeah. They now have professionals who are in industry who are expressing their recognition that this content is important. Yes. And the students can learn from what might be said by those professionals. And likewise, the professionals can understand this generation of students yes. in terms of what they're expressing and thinking. So uh, you talk about intercultural from Botswana to the United States. I'm also thinking about age culture. Yeah, professional culture sure. to create these, uh, you know, these are uh, what I call digital agoras, right? We're creating yeah. a marketplace in which yeah. people can share and express and question and right. explore. Yeah, yeah. So right, so right, so right. I was just sharing with a colleague of mine yesterday about Wawa. You're all familiar with Wawa, right? Yeah. Uh, but I'm talking the 80s when I had a special course for entrepreneurs budding entrepreneurs that I handpicked to participate in the course. And I invited 12 CEOs to come into the class and talk about their nice. business and their philosophy of business and their philosophy of life and living and, and share with these young people. And one of them was the 
uh, chair of the board of the Wawa Corporation. And he came in, Bob Woods came into the class, spent three hours with my students, had them do a project. They actually did a project and he invited them. He says, we'll open Wawa out to you. Go in and tell us what we should be doing. Right. Believe it or not, those students wrote papers that said, you should try selling donuts. They did. <laughs> Rent videos. They did. Wow. <laughs> Sandwiches, food. Look at Wawa today. It's become more or less a convenient restaurant. Yeah. Right? Interesting. And 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 Bob took the research papers the students wrote while on vacation, sent me a 15-page single-space typed response. Wow. Now, that's exactly what you're doing, Gary. That's the kind of richness that students enjoy when you have professionals coming in and engaging them in the manner in which you're bringing the LinkedIn population to your classroom. We, 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 should, we hope so. And this is, I think, also what's exciting about what it is you're doing in terms of an experience design, which is the natural, going back to the theme of congruence, the natural congruence between these worlds that are otherwise kept very separate. Yes. That we consider mm -hmm. academia completely separate from applied yes. or professional Yes. And that, you know, maybe a student does an internship and that's how they get, you know, but they have to go leave campus for that. How do we bring all of it together? And the technology is, makes it possible to overcome what used to be physical barriers. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree. Mm -hmm. I think that's good. I like that. You know, it's, it's like, there's, there's, there's both hope for the future, but I think, uh, you know, what I'm taking away from this too, is that, the like technology, you know, to your point, Mohammed is as a tool that we can use with purpose. And, and like, part of it is like, if we apply, you know, design thinking without saying design thinking, right. Common sense to, to the idea of like, how can we then note where these limitations are? And Gary's example is great in terms of um, let's bring in a community of LinkedIn members to, to a traditional classroom. Yeah. And then imagine too, if it's an, okay, if, if then we say, all right, our, our 23 LinkedIn passengers, what do you think about how can we improve this learning experience from folks sure. outside of the thing? You know, that's yeah. like, right. it's, it actually takes us all the way back to our, if I wanted to unsubscribe from a spam email, what mm -hmm. information do you need to do that? And so in this case, it's like, what would keep you yeah. subscribed 23 LinkedIn members for the next classroom? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think there's, there's some power there. I think, you know, sure. like it's, it is the Agora. I think it's, it's yeah. the right word. Yeah. Totally. Speaking of technology and, 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 and breaking and staying in touch, I was curious. I saw on your LinkedIn that you had cricket. Did you did you watch Pakistan versus India recently in the Asia Cup? <laughs> you know, Gary, this is the answer is no. Okay, uh, but I have a very strong cricket background. Right. Uh, I I played cricket with the recently ousted Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan. Did you really? Imran and I played cricket against each other because he was the captain of his team. I was the captain of my team in high school. Oh, wow. At this annual hundred year plus rivalry. And he went on and became a professional cricketer and went on right. to England and played and became a superstar. Right. I became a diehard left wing Marxist. Okay. Yeah, well, well, I will. I will. I will do this for. I'll hold the, the, up this this cricket ball yeah, from my desk right now. Yeah. Because I watch a lot of cricket. Um, do. I do. Yeah, especially the what? India Premier League. Yeah. And so when I saw, I but I have no one to talk about it with because yeah. what American watches cricket? But yeah. it is interesting to see the you know the rise of cricket in the United States yes. and through television stations like Willow TV. 
And now the United States has a cricket organization and and the possibilities of a professional league, Mm -hmm. things like that, you know, being spearheaded by the immigration from India, from Pakistan, from other places. Sure. But also just the way in which people can learn about the, there's more opportunity to learn about it through these various online channels that exist. Sure. Well, I'm glad that you watch cricket, Gary. That's a surprise. Most Americans that I know don't ever think about cricket as something to watch at all. I mean, they, you know, I actually think cricket is more interesting to watch than baseball. Yeah, well, the baseball folks won't tell you that. <laughs> yeah, it's baseball, you know, uh, watching a 20-over cricket, cricket match, and I know you went to school in Punjab, but I don't know if you're a fan of the Punjab Kings or not. From the no, Premier. don't even know them. Don't you don't even, even know them? Wow. Uh, don't oh, even well, yeah. that, that's, a, that's okay. They don't win a lot. <laughs> it also tells you about how much I've followed cricket since I stopped playing cricket in my teens. Well, you've been busy you know, trying been, to create yeah. uh, online content in 1996, which was that a dial-up modem? Did it? <laughs> um, no, no, actually, I licensed Blackboard. Oh, interesting. I had licensed, I personally, when I say personally, I, with my MBA budget, it was not an institutional investment. Wow. I licensed Blackboard and used Blackboard as the vehicle to offer this first online course. And it hasn't changed much since 1996. <laughs> I'm joking, Blackboard. I'm joking. <laughs> I don't want to hear any letters from Blackboard saying that's not true. <laughs> just got us canceled. <laughs> yeah, just Blackboard just banned us from all their internal, uh, internal, you know, content. Yeah. Like that's it. You can't bl- badmouth Blackboard. Yeah. Well, now it's Canvas, isn't it? Canvas is the big league player. That's true. Yeah, Canvas took over. Well, I, you know, I know we're running out of time, but it is it is a question about one, you know, the learning management systems or any kind of technological system. Who's it made for? How does it facilitate access? And how does it make people's lives easier or more difficult? And you know, are people fighting against the system to try to get access to the content, like you were talking about with the pass password issues, or does the content create possibility to? engage with not just the content but one another but also what does it create on the back end for the faculty member to monitor all of this stuff about time spent on different content or you know people lagging behind it's you know it's the center of the ecosystem in many ways the technological heart that beats that we all have to kind of orbit around and the way that system goes is going to be the way that the experience goes for a lot of people Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Right on. Cool. Well, um, Mohammed, thanks so much for, for talking with us. It's been, been both enlightening and and I've learned a ton and I'm, I'm really excited actually to continue the conversation and, and dig into some content ideas going forward um, and and rethink like how we even deliver, right? The questions yeah. of, of like aligning with with cognition and heart as, as our focal point, which I really like. So that's a good, that's my takeaway for today is like, let's, let's align with my clients, minds and hearts today and yeah. see what happens. That's wonderful, Adam. I'm delighted that you were walking away with that. And thank you. Thank you for inviting me to this conversation. It's been uh, enjoyable and there's a lot more for us to talk about after this anyway. All right, we want to thank Dr. Mohamed Latib of CX University for taking the time to chat with us about his career in education and learning experience design. You can learn more about Dr. Mohamed and his work on our show notes. 
Now, we want to know from you, what do you look for in learning experiences and educational materials? You know, what do you find valuable? Are there any kind of tips and tricks, techniques, uh, types of materials that you'd like to share that you find most effective for different kinds of groups? And do those change in different contexts, such as online versus in person? And I think crucially also one of the things that stood out to us for this episode is how do you think about what motivates you to stay engaged with informational content? Sometimes it can be really hard, you know, if something is written in a boring way or it's not very engaging, or even if there's a, I don't know, a poorly made video or something, it can be hard to keep you engaged. So what keeps you uh, feeling that you want to be engaged with different kinds of informational content? And, you know, what types of experience design topics are you most interested in learning? That's something that we're personally interested in. So we'd love to hear from you about that to bring you more great content. So as always, shoot us a message over at feedback at experiencexdesign.com or hop in the conversation on our LinkedIn page. Thanks again for joining us. As always, we're happy to bring you content to stimulate your experience, design thinking, doing, and even learning. So thank you so much for making Experience by Design part of your podcast listening repertoire. Because from what I understand, there's a few podcasts out there to choose from, Mm. and you have decided to be here with us. So thank you. And if you're a company or professional looking to increase your profile, looking to get involved in Experience by Design podcast, please reach out to us by sponsoring an episode or sharing your ideas for show content. And you can always show your support and appreciation by buying us a coffee through our Buy Us a Coffee link on our experiencexdesign.com site. And as always, share your feedback, your likes, your dislikes, your hopes, your dreams, your fears, and your learning inspirations at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. And you can always subscribe to the podcast for free at our website. So with that, we want to say to everybody, please have a happy holiday if you're here in the U.S. Be safe, be kind, be well, and be here for the next experience by design.